Bobby Osinski's Inner Circle. I'm Bobby Osinski, and this is a show all about music, music production, and the music business. I guess today is acoustical consultant, Sam Burko. First of all, I bet you're wondering all about streaming rates. Why are they so low? Well, the British government wanted to find out as well. There are so many artists and songwriters and small labels all complaining that they weren't making enough money. So they held six months worth of hearings and then did a long investigation to find out what they could about streaming rates and major labels as well. Everyone expected them to come down really hard on streaming services and labels, but that didn't happen. Here's what they found out, and it's pretty surprising. The reason why streaming rates are so low is because there's so many artists and so many songs. It turns out that there's only so much that a consumer can listen to, yet there are huge amounts of songs that are uploaded every single day. And the more artists, that means it reduces the amount that each one can make. Next came the major labels. And they found that even though the label profits were increasing, the current evidence doesn't suggest that the majors are making an excess profit. And when it comes to publishing, they found out that publishing has gone up from 8% to 15% today. So that's a pretty good rise from 2007 when they first looked at it. In the end, the UK government found that there were no major problems in streaming rates and with major labels as well. Now, keep in mind this isn't like hearings in the United States where so much is based around political theater. In fact, the British government can sound a business and it gets there fast. So this is a completely different set of circumstances. In the end, the way to increase your royalty rate is to have fewer artists or go to user-centric royalties. That's something we talked about last episode. Go back and check that out because that may be coming soon. If you have any questions or comments, you can send them to questions at bobbyosinski.com. Also, I'm pleased to announce that the fifth edition of my Mixing Engineers Handbook is now available. It's totally updated and includes new sections on mixing and immersive audio, self-mastering, new mixer interviews, and much more. Get your copy at a special discounted price at bobbyosinski.com forward slash handbook. You can also find it on Amazon and Apple Books. Also, Learn all about the latest in music, audio, and production news when you sign up for my newsletter at bobbyosinski.com. There you'll also find out about openings for my latest online classes and special events. That's bobbyosinski.com. Now, vinyl sales are hitting new highs, at least in the last 20 years. And as a result there's not all that much vinyl pressing capacity. So we're finding new vinyl pressing plants coming online and old ones expanding. In fact, right now, there are 30 vinyl pressing plants in the United States. And don't forget that a vinyl pressing plant is just kind of like the tip of the spear. There's lots of other businesses that collaborate to make vinyl records possible, like record labels and mastering, lacquer cutting, Electroplating, which is how they make stampers. Printers to print covers and print labels. Equipment manufacturers. Brokers. Raw material suppliers. Super important. And even logistics service providers. But as we all know, that capacity is one thing, but there's also supply chain issues and lots of other impediments that 
really keep the capacity down. One of the things that always helps CDs is the fact that there was an association where all the disc manufacturers, the replicators could get together and talk about the problems and see if they can fix things and make standards that actually helped everybody. But vinyl didn't have that until now. Now the Vinyl Record Manufacturers Association, or VRMA, has been founded and there's 30 companies from every level of vinyl production involved. It's a good place to share information and experience to help that industry grow. It's really needed right now because there's so much pushing back against the industry, from vinyl lacquers being scarce, to PVC shortages, to OSHA standards, just make it difficult to do business. So there are strength in numbers, and that's what VRMA represents. And hopefully this will lead to more pressing capacity, which means that you'll get your vinyl records a whole lot sooner. My guest this week is Sam Burko, who has designed and improved the acoustics for everything from concert halls, recording studios, amphitheaters, and worship spaces. Sam is a founding member of SIA Acoustics and has been the acoustical designer of a wide variety of projects that includes concert venues like Jazz at Lincoln Center, the Pearl at the Palms, the renovation of Hollywood Bowl, the Grand Old Opry, and the Jazz Standard Nightclub, as well as studios for airshow mastering, the Polar Express remote truck, and the Dennis Reese Family Recording Studio at the Clive Davis School at NYU. He's also a recent Parnelli Award winner and the creator of the SIA Smart Measurement Software, which is the industry standard tool for providing acoustical measurement and sound system optimization capabilities. During the interview, we talked about how the smart software came about, his brutal first business plan, what makes him different from other acoustic consultants, major problems that most home studios have, and much more. I spoke with Sam via Zoom from his office in New York. Let's go back to the beginning of you getting into all this. How did it happen? I wanted to meet girls. I wanted to play rock and roll. I, I wanted to be around music. It was really that simple. I was in college and I loved mixing for bands and I loved doing sound and being involved with technology. And I was studying physics and there was a opportunity to do a lot of mixing and I was having fun doing it. And I very quickly found that being on the road sucked. Like I just wasn't, you know, I don't, I I'm, I'm in awe of people like Dave Morgan and Scoville and Derek and Derek Featherstone and the guys who can live on tour buses 30, 40 weeks a year. I just don't know how they do it and have lives and families and stay connected. And, you know, it's pretty amazing wasn't going to work for me. I'd be dead. And I knew that very early on, like your first few weeks on a tour bus are incredibly fun and total debauchery. I loved it. I started, I went uh, and started working at a particle accelerator at Cornell University and mixing bands at night. And I went to a party and there were great physicists there and um, all sorts of wonderful people, but there were 20 guys to every girl and it was not that much fun. And the next night, you know, some friends of mine played a show and everyone went to the party afterwards and it was a blast. And 
I just felt happier there. A friend of mine was building a recording studio in an apartment in New York City, and it wasn't going so well. And so he called me, and I was literally under the console with a voltmeter when I realized that it was not the equipment. It was the room. Mm. And so I went to the library, and the books were just really horribly academic, like lots of theory about wave propagation and nothing about how to build a wall or, you know, now there's so much great information. And I thought I should measure the response. And I, I didn't know how to measure anything acoustically other than SPL, really. So I called a friend who called a friend who introduced me to David Andrews, who gave me the name of the people selling the TEF machine. Remember the TEF I machine? do. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And I asked a bunch of questions and nothing they said made a word of sense to me. Don Davis was coming to town and giving a lecture and David arranged for me to attend. And he analyzed this waterfall plot. And there were maybe 25 people in the lecture. And at the break, I went up to about 15 of them and said, could someone explain to me what the hell he's talking about? Because I don't know. And these were pretty smart guys. These were real people in the industry. And I was the new guy and like, none of them had a clue. I'm like, there's something fundamentally wrong here, right? Yeah, like, yeah, yeah. this isn't right. So I started thinking about what you would measure and how you would measure. And that led me to our tech where I walked in, I met Russell Johnson. I said, what do I have to do to get a job here? And he said, go get a master's degree. I literally applied the next day. Wow. It's really funny. Kenny Berger, founder of VAW and friend of mine, when I talked to him about my career early on, he said, it just seems so circuitous. Like you meet these people and they hire you to do stuff. and It doesn't seem like you have a plan. And I'm like, yeah, there's a pretty simple plan. Have fun, learn stuff, make some money. You know? <laughs> yeah, right. Everybody wants that. Yeah, I mean, that was the plan. I mean, as much as there was a plan, that was the plan. Artec had a team of acoustics people, and Russell was completely non-mathematical. He was architectural. Russell had an amazing insight, and what Russell's insight was was that acoustics is architecture, that when you're doing is designing rooms that are shaped and constructed and finished to interact with humans in a certain way, tonal balance, lack of reflections, low noise. And what he was missing was the ability to measure and predict what these things would do. And so my job at Artec was they had lots of people with great ears and lots of people who knew architecture they just didn't have an acoustic measurement guy. So I, that was how I picked acoustic measurement was to fill that role for Russell. And I started thinking about measurements. We started with, um, you know, popping balloons to make an impulse yeah. and then a starter pistol with the barrel cut off. There's a very funny story about one of the guys at Artec walking through the metal detector. This is 20 years before 9-11 or 15 years before 9-11. Uh, in Washington, D.C. with a gun with a barrel cut off. And while the, even then, they didn't take it 
as humorous at yeah, all. Yeah, right. <laughs> anyway, but this triangle sort of defines my approach to acoustical design, which is critical listening, architectural understanding of construction and details, room shaping, which is critically important to me, and then uh, acoustical measurement and prediction. And the interaction of those three things has been my overarching acoustical focus. Okay, so then you became the measurement guy. Right. When did SMART come into this? Um, years later, a few years later, I, I left Artec to work um, at the Joyner Rose Group uh, with um, Jack Wrightson and Russ Berger. And Russ was doing studios and Jack was doing amphitheaters and stadiums and everything else. And it was a really amazing place because there were so many people who have had an impact on our industry that were there. You know, it, it's funny in acoustics and audio, there tend to be these pods, right? So one of my favorites is at McEwen Audio, where you had John Meyer and uh, Steve Kadar and Ken Deloria and a few other people were there. And at Bolt Baranek and Newman, you had, you know, this whole team of amazing acoustical consultants and people who would go on to do it. And at Join the Rose Group, we had, you know, Russ and Jack, uh, Jack Wrightson and all of the WJHW guys and the folks from Acoustic Dimensions and the folks, Topper Soden and just so many interesting people, Rich Swibel, who founded Media Matrix, so many interesting people. So these pods, and I believe that had it been maybe a little bit more egalitarian in its nature, uh, it would still be together, but it wasn't and it didn't. Um, and I decided that I had met some guys in, in Dallas who had a DSP platform and their company imploded. And all I wanted to do was build a measurement tool and they had all of it programmed. All I had to do was sort of make the pieces and build a user interface. And so I figured I'd take a year and just do that. When their company imploded and they started suing each other, my girlfriend at the time, who I later married, said, uh, you should just start a company and build this damn thing. And so I wrote a business plan, which was incredibly hard to do. Um, I had never done that. Mm, yeah. And I, I've written a document that I'm happy to share with you called Writing a Business Plan to Make Your Idea a Reality. And it's really a, answering a series of questions. What are you going to do? Who are you going to do it for? How big is that audience? How do you reach that audience? Who's reaching that audience now? How fragmented is that audience? What other things do they need to do? Who's serving these needs currently? What's the state of the art? What's the exit strategy? What's it cost to get up and running? What's it cost to stay up and running? And the best money I've ever spent in my life was taking a bunch of people to lunch and asking them to help me answer those questions. Excellent. And those are all valid questions that even if you're not looking for money, it's worth answering. That's right. Exactly right. See, you, you because you, you've been through this and you understand it and you have experience, but it seems so foreign. You know, if you like, haven't done it, sure, yeah. To an intern, Jacob over here, you don't know that process. And I'll tell you the interesting story. This is true. I wasn't going to tell you this, but my uncle Stuart was a lawyer. 
So I wrote a business plan and he sent, he said, send it to me. I'll read it. So I waited a couple of weeks and I called him up and I said, Hey, did you get a chance to read it? He goes, yeah, you got a minute. I said, sure. And he goes, okay. Page one, paragraph one. <laughs> That's DSP? a bad start. You can tell. Yeah. Right. What's DSP. I'm like, it's digital signal processing. He goes, I go, everyone who's going to read this knows that. He goes, I read it. I didn't know it. Spell it out. Paragraph one, sentence two. <laughs> and by page two or page three, tears were running down my cheeks. Like I was literally crying. I had put three or four months into this. By the time he had ripped it apart and I had gone back and readdressed all these things and answered his questions and restructured it so that it flowed and made sense and answered the questions that people were going to ask. When I went to JBL and to other people to pitch this idea of licensing it or selling it, every question they had asked me, my uncle had already asked me and I knew where the answer was and how to answer it. Uh, you can't repay that kind of debt, yeah. you know? So maybe taking a moment to remember him, he's passed on since, but you know, that's the kind of thing that you're lucky to have someone in your life who he didn't care how much money I made. He was much more interested in, did it make sense to do this? And what would I lose if it didn't go well? Mm, yeah. That's another lesson you learn. Like the goal isn't always, how much are you going to make? It's what are you putting at risk? I have to tell you um, a little story. So I haven't had much experience with SMART myself, but I know all about it because it's been around for a while and industry standard. But I did get a chance to play with it. I think it was built into a Personas, uh, a small version of it, into Personas uh, Studio Live consoles. So somebody asked me to set up their PA in a rehearsal room, and they had... Mm -hmm you know, one of these systems. And I went through and I just followed whatever it, it, it asked me to do. And after that, the number of people that would come in and say, this sounds better in my studio. And till this day that happens where the, the owner of, of the, the studio keeps on, the rehearsal studio keeps on calling me and saying, I don't know what you did, but everybody's raving about this. So my little contribution to this, which is, is nothing in the grand scheme of things, but uh, it's done me well. I don't want to seem immodest, but I get, I could tell you a hundred, 200 versions of that story. It's such a nice feeling for me. Yeah. Um, the underlying issue, a technical one that I think you'll appreciate is that smart, the, the core of smart and what everyone uses it for is not why I wrote it. I wrote it to analyze rooms. I, I wrote it to analyze concert halls when it became clear that I could build a sound system tool that was practical. And that's thanks to Don Pearson at Ultrasound, who was the Grateful Dead system engineer and just needed better tools. And Thorny, who was Pavarotti and the three tenor sound guy, these guys were under incredible stress to get systems tuned and aligned. And they just needed practical tools. And they weren't interested in academic pursuits. It was like, get it off of the truck, get it up, get it running, have it ready for sound check. And you, you, you can't fake it with those guys. Their ears are all too good. Their sense of interaction of the sound system with the room and the audience is too knowledgeable. They, they know what they're looking for. My understanding was that people at B&K and John Meyer had come up with a multi-window transfer function. 
So instead of just using an RTA, you can now send a signal out and take a signal back and compare the two in the frequency domain. You could also compare them in the time domain, which was much more interesting to relate to room acoustics, by the way. Mm. But stick on the transfer function that this idea that you had equal resolution in every octave sort of hides the fact that it's really multi-time window, which means that the graph you're looking at, even though it looks like one graph and it's moving in real time, it's six or eight different graphs Frankenstein together. And what you're really looking at is the response of just the loudspeaker at the high end. And a whole long time of interaction of the loudspeaker system with itself and the room at the low end. I mean, those time windows are like one, two milliseconds at the high end and three quarters of a second at the low end. And so you're looking at an increasingly large amount of room in your measurement as you go down in frequency. And this was like, this was evil to the Tef Moonies. Sorry. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's always going to be Tef Moonies to me. I, <laughs> I got hate mail from these people. Like Dick Heiser would roll over in his grave. <laughs> Years later, Amy Heiser came in to me. She goes, I, I understand your work and I think it's interesting. And I think Dick would have loved it. Mm. I felt so honored. I was like, so nice of her to say. But at the end of the day, this idea of a multi-time window transfer function is useful because it relates directly to how your ear hears. And so while it's not modeling the ear, the great acoustician, Japanese acoustician, Kaoshi Ando, and Peranik uh, and many other people looked at the response time of the ear to different sounds. And there's, you can go back to, you know, anthropology and twigs breaking underfoot, and, you know, those high frequency sounds and rumble of, of earthquakes and tsunamis being low frequency sounds that, you know, very few people are, but that multiple time window seems to make that particular type of curve an extremely isomorphic relationship to what you're hearing. So the more linear it is, the cleaner the sound is. And then you can do whatever the hell you want with it on the input side. <laughs> you, can, you can make artistic choices on the input side. Moving on for a second, I know you've done all sorts of different projects, studios, churches, concert halls, clubs, theaters. Yeah. What's the most fun? I have an answer for this. I, I, I do. The most fun is when someone gives you an idea of their vision and you get to help shape it. And I've gotten to do that three, four, five, six times, seven times, eight times. And it's, that's for me the most fun. I met Winton Marsalis. And when we started working together, early, early, early on, we went out for dinner and he took a napkin and he put concert hall and then he put jazz club and then he put studio. And on the side of the napkin, he wrote like visiting grandma's house. Maybe I wrote it. I, I, I made the drawing and, and it was just a sketch. And he kept saying words like egalitarian and welcoming and feels like home and golden sound. He was obsessed with this concept that his horn should sound not strident, not silver, not harsh, but golden and warm and bright and 
you know, sort of all of these words for trying to talk about sound in an interesting way. And we, we spent a long time talking about when the hall opened, I gave him two gifts. I gave him a shofar, which is a Jewish ram's horn. Uh, and uh, I also gave him the napkins with those, that sketch uh, you know, framed. So for me, the fun part is getting a call from Nick Forrester saying, I don't know if you know me, but I'm buying a church in Boulder and I have a radio show and I want to build a, 200 seat performance venue and a studio and some offices and having to, you know, gut a 90 year old stone building and figure out how to fit all this stuff in it. Or a call from Randall Klein saying, you built one jazz center in New York. We'd like to build one in San Francisco. That's fundamentally different, but with similar goals. Mm, Wow. Dave Glasser and Charlie Pilts are both great mastering engineers and uh, I built studios for them. And, and again, each of them had a vision for what their studio complex would look like. So for me, the fun part is trying to focus the vision into something that's architectural and ergonomic and acoustic. I would imagine then just the opposite of that would be so the most difficult would be people that don't allow you to do that. Yeah, I, I generally get out of those jobs. Huh. I palm those off at other people in the company. Now, um, you know what? It's funny because you can have an impact on those people too. So a friend of mine is a producer in Hollywood and he wants to have a new studio. And you know, JJ, what am I talking about? I do, about? yes. I know right, him very right. I respect his ear as well. Yes, he's much. great. And 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 I I I I consider him a very good friend. Right. And JJ wanted to redo his studio and upgrade it all. And turns out that he doesn't have the space to build things in his property and he wanted to build it in his home. And we had a long discussion about. I don't think you should build it here. I think you should build it someplace else. I don't want to buy another building. I don't want to have to leave my house and drive there. I don't, you know, I want it here. So we're building it underground. I'm not sure he's not going to kill me for coming up with that. (laughs) Yes. I understand the problem so far. Oh my God. We've had some challenges, you know, not to mention COVID, uh, which slowed the construction down by over a year. But uh, we're building it, and it's it's uh, rounding the bend. It's, we're coming down to the home stretch. So, but it's been a long process. But you know, even when you have someone who knows what they want, there's a lot of creativity left to influence them. And so, JJ is probably as strong-willed as anyone about what he wants. And yet, we get to work together. So for me, that's that's really the fun part. You know, I like. I'll give you a great example. Pure 17 in New York is an outdoor music venue. And it's a wonderful place to hear a concert. Um, some guys from our office was, were down there last week for, to hear a show. And I love hearing how much they love the way it sounds. But putting a new venue on the East River, when you have Brooklyn on one side, Brooklyn Heights and and you know, very wealthy people who don't necessarily want to hear music played at them from across the river, or the Wall Street area, which has become more residential along the river. They don't want you there either. 
And we had to prove that we could build a venue and our permitting was contingent on controlling sound. So we ended up using an adaptive system, which is we picked one with 22 drivers per box, 12 boxes a side. So for 4,000 seats, I've got 24 boxes of Anya plus 24 of the subwoofers. I mean, you could do 10,000 people with that, but we needed it for the vertical and the horizontal control and dispersion control. And it works amazingly well. And this is our fifth season. So it's pretty wonderful place. So if you're in New York, Pure 17 is a wonderful place to hear a show. Uh, Really great. I have a question you might have, I think you alluded to it before, and that's the intersection of architecture with acoustic design. Yeah. And the feel of the architecture. There are some acoustic consultants that are really good at getting the acoustic part, but the vibe is... Yeah, it drives me nuts. I I also don't like the way they talk about it. I'm building a room that's acoustically neutral. You don't hear the room. And I'm like... I have never found that to be true, first of all. You always feel like you're in a room. And the people who say that tend to overdamp them. I'm super proud of the fact that a lot of people let me be their interior designer and acoustical designer and architectural designer. And in many cases, the architects are working with us or for us particularly on studio projects, because we're generating all the drawings. Jacob was working on drawings today, and we're looking at details. And my comment to him was, look, you thought you were going to hang out with all these cool engineers, and you're worried about how a door gets mounted so that it's at the same level of another door, or how a ceiling gets constructed. But that's critical to the acoustical design. And that's the level of detail that we need to get in. I know more about HVAC systems and more about plumbing than I ever wanted to know. I mean, it's a nightmare. Oh, my God. You know, I have a famous, famous client who once said, you know, you're the geekiest guy at the cool party and probably the coolest guy at the geeky party. (laughs) I don't think he meant it as a compliment. Uh, it is though. That's fantastic. I I took it that way, but I'm not sure he meant it that way. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, so different acoustic designers have different approaches. Yes. And I'm curious as to what makes you different than than others. I mean, you already mentioned some of it, but... Um, I, I, think, I think two things. I think several things. Um, one is that we work on a wide range of projects. Uh, I, I think that your understanding of acoustics... I started with concert halls. Uh, working for Russell Johnson, I wrote my master's thesis on Russell's coupled room design approach to uh, concert halls, traditional symphonic concert halls, or I guess non-traditional symphonic concert halls. That idea of understanding how the architecture, the room shaping relates is fundamental to what I do. Getting involved and earning people's trust is another thing. I'm working with a guy now who's building 300-seat music venues, rock and roll music venues. And I've done a number of Brooklyn Bowls and a number of other related rock and roll venues like this Pier 17, which are super fun because I like to go out and hear music. 
And, you know, in the last, I'm on a tear since March, I've decided I'm going to go out and hear as much music as I can. So I, you know, I went to hear Hot Tuna at Carnegie Hall on Friday night. And then I went to hear the Chrono String Quartet at Zankel, the basement of Carnegie Hall on Saturday night. Yeah, I, I go to hear a wide range of music. I, I like I like acoustic music. I like rock and roll. I like blues. I'm pretty substantial jazz fan. Um, so I think I think that people trust me to sort of bring a wider vision and understanding of musical experience to their projects. Looking at the typical home studio, is there one main problem that keeps on coming up over and over the yes. spot? Yes, tonal imbalance. Oh my God. And I think I think that that this is a good example of where the internet and the type of things that you're doing and um, all these different Facebook groups and all the different platforms that people have is really helping. Because years and years ago, I went to Rob Scoville's house for the first time uh, in Scottsdale. And I walked into his studio and he's like, I just don't get it. I bought all these two inch panels and the room's boomy. I said, Rob, let's fix it. And he goes, oh, I just finished construction. I don't want to start again. And I looked at him. I said, I know I didn't mean like later. I mean, let's go fix it right now. I can, I can solve this problem in 10 minutes. He's like, what? I pulled all the panels. They were Velcroed on the wall. I pulled them all off and angled them so there was some space behind them. And I took a bunch of extra fiberglass that was out in the corridors and garage, whatever. We shoved it behind some of them. And I said, all right, less boomy. And he listened to it. He said, I can't believe it. I'm going, you can't attach a two-inch panel to a wall without an airspace. It's the airspace. Now, there's a uh, Ron Sorrow and a bunch of the measurement people have measured and determined that, I guess, one inch or one and a quarter inches behind is the proper depth. I don't really know. I build a lot of acoustical soffits um, where we bring the material out a couple of feet and line it and so that there's an impedance mismatch and the wave goes up and it breaks up the corner and, you know, does some damping up at the high uh, mid lows, you know, up in that 110 hertz to 180 hertz range. But I think that the single biggest problem is a lack of low frequency absorption. The other thing is putting good money after bad ideas, you know, like this guy goes, I bought all of this great, doped vinyl it's heavy massive vinyl oh right yeah i tacked it to the wall to keep the sound from going through the wall and i'm like what about the doors and the windows and the ducks yeah yeah right <laughs> yeah uh what about them i'm going if there's a door that doesn't have seals and there's a window that's not high quality window and there's a duck that goes to another room what did all that vinyl do for you? You spent a lot of money and a lot of time to tack it up, but what did you achieve? So I, I think that thinking about isolation, uh, so to answer the question directly, I think it's three parts. One, I think it's not understanding the difference between acoustic isolation, keeping sound in and out, and acoustical treatment affecting the acoustics of the room is problem number one. 
So getting a clear understanding of what you're doing to address each of those separately, because there are very few things that address them both at the same time. Yeah. Number two is a lack of low frequency control. I think that that in a room that has a standard smallest dimension of around 10 feet, which would be the vertical in most small rooms, your Schroeder frequency is somewhere around 300 hertz, which means from middle C on down, you've got modes. It's easy to kill the ones up above 150 hertz, but once you start getting down farther, it's harder and harder. And when you get down below 100, it gets really hard. And there are a bunch of great products that are reasonably priced these days uh, that absorb 70 hertz and 50 hertz. And But getting people to spend the money on them and select them and position them is a whole nother issue. Yeah. But I think those are the, the two big ones. The last one is understanding the impact of the ductwork in isolation. And lastly, I see this all the time, people putting mid-high frequency diffusers behind loudspeakers. Explain that one to me. It scatters 400 hertz and up, and it's behind your loudspeakers. I don't get it. No, I hear you. I hear you. Okay, last question, Sam. What's the best piece of advice that maybe you learned along the way or somebody imparted to you? Don't drink the purple Kool-Aid. <laughs> the best piece of advice that I got was to ask people for their advice and listen to what they tell you and take it to heart. When I started SI software company, I put $1,500 aside to take people to lunch and ask them questions, uh, the questions of the business plan that I sent, that I discussed with you. And people I didn't know, Jim Nomikis, who was the general manager of Carnegie Hall. And I had met him through some friends and I called him up and I said, Jim, I want to ask you about acoustics and how you deal with systems and measurement from the hall side. And he said, great. When do you want? I said, I'd love to buy you lunch. And we went to a Greek restaurant and I asked him questions. And he later hired me to replace doors at Carnegie Hall, which was <laughs> great honor, right? Yeah. But I think that's the best advice. I, I asked people like Tony Agnello, who was at Eventide, and then Ariel, the founder of Ariel, questions. And he lent me DSP boards. And the guys at Bell Labs lent me their anechoic chamber, Arielco. Wow. Yeah, they just gave it to me because I called up and asked questions and said I wanted to investigate stuff. I, I think that if you show a genuine interest in what people are interested in, they'll respond. And I think that that I think that's probably the best piece of advice I ever got. And the best piece of advice I give to people is never, ever, 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 ever set up a sound system or make acoustical measurements without doing some critical listening. Critical listening is always part of that step. Go back to that triangle perception. Critical listening is one of the three pillars. And for everyone time I've heard, yeah, some guy brought smart in here and stared at a screen and never did any listening. And it didn't really sound that great. Well, you know, don't blame the tool. If someone doesn't, you know, breaks their finger, you know, it's like you're using a hammer. You can use it well, or you can use it badly. 
one last thing. I see I see your necklace. Oh. Which is awesome, but I wonder how many people understand what it is. You know, I get more comments about that necklace. Um, it's of the, uh, the necklace for those of you in the non-visual arts. Um, it is uh, a spider. A, a, they're called spiders. It's the it's centerpiece of a 45. And uh, I was in Las Vegas and I made day two of a poker tournament. And it was, uh, I had satellited in by complete accident. I hadn't planned on playing this tournament. And uh, the quick version is that I had an interview with the chief technology officer of some company. And he was interviewing me. Uh, he had just come on board and didn't know the players. And I was a consultant to them regarding measurement and DSP stuff. And, and he said, so I see you're a poker player. And I'm like, oh, God, there goes all my credibility. And I was playing a good bit of tournament poker at the time. And he's like, listen, I get my ass kicked in a home game. Can we go downstairs, play in the casinos in Vegas? And give me some hints and talk me through some of it. We ended up playing a satellite. And so I won a ticket. I was going to sell it. And he's like, no, 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 go play it. And I made it to day two. And uh, I saw this in uh, one of those stores. So I just bought it. And uh, still my biggest win at the poker table. That's that's an excellent story. But again, how many people understand what it is when they see it? A fair number, uh, you know, tend to be older people. Yeah, well, that's what I was getting at. Yeah. Well, funny I, someone asked me if it was some sort of gang symbol or some sort of religious symbol. Yeah. I, I've gotten some funny ones, but, uh, uh, you know, on airplanes. I get a lot from uh, people waiting online at airplanes. I was thinking to myself, that is actually really cool. If you didn't know what it is, you look at it and you go, oh, that's that's cool. I, it, it's a great symbol. I got one on my arm, too. It's the geekiest tattoo I could have ever thought to get. <laughs> it's a spider with uh, Schrodinger's wave equation, the fundamental equation of quantum mechanics across it. You can find out more about Sam at siaacoustics.com. That's siaacoustics.com. Remember that you can learn all about the latest in music, audio, and production news when you sign up for my newsletter at bobbyosinski.com. There you'll also find out about openings for my latest online classes and special events. That's bobbyosinski.com. Thanks for listening and being in my inner circle. Remember, if you have any questions or comments, you can send them to questions at bobbyosinski.com. To listen to other episodes of Bobby Osinski's Inner Circle, Go to bobbyosinski.com and select the podcast tab or go to bobbyowinnercircle.com where you can find an Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music, Stitcher, Mixcloud, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Deezer, TuneIn Radio, Radio Public, and Podbean. At bobbyosinski.com and bobbyowinnercircle.com you'll also find a sign-in form for my newsletter and for alerts for new podcasts. This is Bobby Osinski. I will see you next time. 